How many of you are going to watch the Super Bowl today? Raise your hand. A few of you. Wow. That's sad. Pretend like all of you are saying yes. How many of you are going to watch the Super Bowl today? All right. Oh, excellent. Good. Well, you know, this week, you know, leading up to Super Bowl, there's one thing that you always see on uh, the, the sports news, right? You're watching the sports news about the game, and what you see time and time again are players from each opposing team claiming that their team is going to win, right? They're like, hey, we're going to win, we're going to, we're going to stick it to them, we're going to take them down, we're, we're going to win the game, no problem, hands down. You see lots of predictions. You see lots of, uh, uh, of predictions of who's going to win and by how much, etc., etc. And, you know, in the end, really, words are cheap, aren't they? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Because talk is just that. It's just words. It doesn't mean anything. I remember uh, last year, uh, or, or this, this last fall at, at the World Series, the uh, Philadelphia Phillies, Jimmy Rollins said, we're going to win the World Series in six games. And the Yankees won the World Series in seven games, actually. So uh, talk was cheap. He didn't back it up with actions. And But guys on both sides, Saints and Colts today, one side... Boy, their talk is going to be pretty cheap. The title of my message today is, Words are cheap, but Jesus' death wasn't. Words are cheap, but Jesus' death was not. You see, today as we continue on in the book of Romans, we're going to be at the latter part of Romans 3 today, Paul is going to be talking a lot about words. He's going to say, look, there's a lot of people out there who have great boasts. There's a lot of people out there who have just a lot of words coming out of their mouth. A lot of boasting, a lot of pride. A lot of people who think that that they're good enough to be righteous before God and to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Paul's going to say, you know what? Your words are cheap. The only thing that's worth anything. The only thing that's meaningful is Jesus' death. The only boast you can have is that by faith in Christ, you can be saved. Talk is cheap. Words are cheap. But Jesus' death is surely not that. I want to recap a little bit. Today's uh, message really is only is meant to be focused on the last four verses of Romans, but I wanted to expand it more because I had a lot of uh, dialogue with many of you after last week's message, and I expected it. Uh, Anytime you preach on the issue of propitiation, uh, of of what the, the, the cross actually means, and who it actually applies to, uh, there's always a lot of questions about that because Christians have a disagreement on, on what is the application of the cross to, to the world. Did Jesus just die for the sins of the elect? Did He just die for Christians? Or did He die for all people? Did He die potentially for all people or actually for all people? These are questions that serious brothers and sisters in Christ grapple with from different traditions, uh, Reformed and Arminian and Calvinism and all... Everything in between. Um, It's a tough issue in theology. And so I wanted to spend a little bit more time before we get to our our main text today 
in just kind of recapping what we are saying here about Romans chapter 3 with respect to propitiation. You know, last week uh, we basically said two things. Two things. Number one, we said this. Jesus, by His death, immediately and totally propitiated, that is, satisfied, the Father's righteous anger towards sin, all sin, and made the whole world savable. Jesus, by His death, immediately and totally propitiated, He satisfied the Father's righteous anger toward all sin and made the whole world savable. We'll get into that, what that means here in just a moment. And number two, we said this, Jesus, because of His death, is now the mercy seat. The hilasterion we learned last week in Greek. The meeting place. The Old Testament meeting place between God and man. Man can now be saved by faith in Christ. The Old Testament mercy seat we learned last week uh, was the, the lid, really, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And upon the cover of the Ark of the Covenant... On the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in and would sprinkle the blood and God Almighty would speak there, would meet there with the high priest of Israel, with Moses, then Aaron, then the high priest later after that. He would meet with them at the mercy seat. God and man would meet together. And here, Jesus, in Romans 3.23, we're saying now Jesus is the mercy seat. He's the meeting place. He's the one where we find harmony and relationship with God. But let's zero in on the first one here. Let's zero in on the first one. Bring it to the forefront here. Jesus, by His death, immediately and totally propitiated. He satisfied the Father's righteous anger toward all sin of all time. How do we know that's true? Well, we know that's true based on a number of Scriptures. First Scripture that comes to my mind when I, when I make this claim here is, is 1 John 2.2. 2. Let's bring it up. And He Himself, John says, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I, I suggest to everyone that reads 1 John 2.2, 2, read it very, very plainly. You don't need to be a pro. You don't need to be a whiz to figure out what it's saying. Read 1 John 2, 2 plainly, and it will speak volumes of the work of the cross. John says that Jesus Himself is, is the propitiation for our sins. There is no mention here of potential propitiation. Jesus, by His death, is the propitiation for our sins. John says that Jesus Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Clearly, John meant that Jesus satisfied the Father's anger toward our sin. The sin of every Christian. In fact, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.24. Peter says this, Jesus bore our sins in His own body on the tree. Again, a plain reading of this is in order. Jesus bore our sins. What does that mean? 
That means when He went to the cross 2,000 years ago, your sins and your sins and your sins and my sins were put upon Him. Our actual sins. The sins I've done in the past were put on Jesus. The sins I will do in the future were put on Jesus 2,000 years ago at the cross. He took our sin. He took my sin and carried it on His shoulders as He died on the cross. Once again, I, I, I don't see here a, a measure of potentiality. Jesus didn't potentially bear my sin. He did bear my sin. He actually bore my sin. And He actually bore your sin. Peter says He bore our sin in His body on the tree. But we're not done with 1 John 2, 2 just yet. John says that Jesus is not only the propitiation for our sins, but He says, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, whatever could that mean? Exactly what it says. It means exactly what it says. Jesus did not just die for the elect. He didn't just die for Christians. He didn't just die for those who would believe in Him. Jesus' death on the cross is not rendered meaningless until we believe in Him. Propitiation isn't contingent on faith. It's not potential. It's actual. And the effect of propitiation is not only good for our sins, the effect of propitiation is good for the sins of the whole world. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. If he didn't do that, John lied. Jesus took it away at the cross. That's why Paul could say, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, bringing the world to Him not imputing their trespasses to them. He brought the world to Him in Christ. He said, come to Me. I'm removing sin as the issue. Come to Me. The best thing about the doctrine of propitiation is that it applies to every man, every woman, every child who has ever lived. The cross is good news for everyone. And what is that good news? That God's anger toward the sin of the world has been immediately and totally averted in Jesus Christ. Sin has been dealt a crushing blow at the cross. The wages of sin is death, and guess what? Jesus paid those wages. Now God satisfied by Christ, is freely able to offer to you and to me eternal salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Propitiation makes the world 
savable. Propitiation makes the world savable. God, because He has been satisfied by sin, is now able to freely offer redemption, eternal salvation, simply by faith in Christ. Now, we talk a lot about justification by faith here at Coast. It's, it's the heartbeat, really, of the Christian faith. Justification by faith. But let there be no mistake. Were it not, mark these words carefully, were it not for the cross, were it not for what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, God would not be able to offer salvation by faith. Let me say that again. Were it not for the cross, God would not be able, He would not even be capable of offering to you and to me justification by simply believing in Christ. You say, why? Why why can't God make up whatever He wants for salvation? Why can't God make the terms as He goes? He's God. He can do anything, right? No. As a perfectly holy God, the Father is not able, He's not capable of simply making up how people come to Him. When faced with a sinner, God cannot simply say, oh, forget about your sin. Don't worry about your sin. Just believe in My Son. Yeah, that sounds good. And I'll let you come into My kingdom. Words are cheap. Words are cheap, friends. Talk is cheap. It must be backed up with action. God's holiness... God's perfect righteousness requires action. It requires a payment for sin. And Paul talks of this payment in terms of a ransom, actually. He says in 1 Timothy 2, he says this about that payment. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all. A payment for all. This ransom, friends, it had to be paid. It had to be paid. If it were not paid, we would not have the opportunity to be justified by faith. God could not have offered to us justification by faith, for He cannot arbitrarily ignore sin. The ransom had to be paid. And it was in Christ. It was an actual payment. It wasn't a potential payment. It was a full payment. It wasn't a deposit, the balance of which is paid when we believe. That's not true of the propitiation of Christ. Jesus, by His death, immediately and totally propitiated. He satisfied the Father's righteous anger toward all sin of all time and made the whole world savable simply by believing in Him. 
He made the whole world savable. Jesus' death is for all. Its benefit extends to all. We could not be saved without it. But Jesus' death does not save us. Make no mistake. It only makes us savable. What is needed now is faith. What is needed now on our part, now that God has reconciled the world to Himself, He's brought the world near. He said, I'll put aside the things I have against you and I'll bring you close. But what God asks of us now, what He asks of every human being when they stand before Him on the last day as He looks at them and says, do you have My Son in you? Do you have My life in you? Sin has been dealt with at the cross. But one issue remains. Do you have eternal life in you? Do you have My Son in you by faith? What are we saying about propitiation? We're saying first this. Jesus, by His death, immediately and totally propitiated the Father's righteous anger toward all sin and made the whole world savable. We're also saying, number two, Jesus, because of His death, is now the mercy seat. He is now the meeting place between God and man. And man can now be saved by faith in Christ. New terms. Terms that could not be if Christ didn't die. Oh sure, they were the same terms that God gave to Abraham. But those terms would have been meaningless had Christ not died. Abraham was also justified by faith. The Bible makes that very, very clear. So the terms were given prior to Christ's death, but the terms could not be made up. Words are cheap. Talk is cheap. They must be met by action. Action in the cross. Jesus, because of His death, number two, let's focus in on this now is now the mercy seat, the meeting place between God and man. Man can now be saved by faith in Christ. Romans 3, 23-25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth. He put Jesus up as a propitiation. Hilasterion, which is a better translation, would be a mercy seat. He's the meeting place by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Now, in virtue of Christ's death, you and I have the incredible gift of simply being able to believe in Jesus for salvation. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's incredible terms. These are terms that you, ne- you don't see in any other religion. You don't see these terms in Islam. You don't see these terms in any of the Eastern religions. You don't see these terms in any of the cults. These terms are, are, are unbelievable. That we could be saved by believing? Really? You've got to be kidding. 
how simple it is, how easy it is, and yet paid with such a price. Walt Russell, my, one of my favorite profs at Talbot, used to say, our salvation is freely given, but expensively purchased. Freely given, but expensively purchased. This is what we're saying about propitiation. This is what we're saying about Jesus being the mercy seat. Not all Christians agree. And I have, I have, uh, I have room for that. I have lots of friends who disagree with me on this issue. I have many friends who try to, to tell me day and night, Jesus only died for the elect. And I think they're crazy. I think that I think uh, I think it does great damage to the cross, to what Jesus did. I have others who who think it was merely a potential payment. Uh, respectfully, I don't see that. Um, it was an actual payment. It was a ransom. It was paid. Sin's been dealt with, and what is left is: Do you have God's life in you? Because you still need to be reborn. Nicodemus asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus didn't talk about his sin. He talked about his spirit. He said, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. That's what you need to do. Now let's finish the chapter. Romans 3 beginning in verse 27. Paul says this, Look, where then is boasting? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Paul asks rhetorically, hey, where does all this propitiation talk leave us? Where does all this discussion of Jesus' death, where does it leave us at the end of the day? And his answer is, hey, it leaves us in awe of God. That's Paul's answer. It leaves us in awe. Because no Christian can boast. He says, hey, can you boast about this? Of course you can't. No Christian can boast about their salvation. God has done it. God in Christ has reconciled the world. He did it. Christ paid the price. Jesus propitiated the Father's wrath. Salvation is entirely a free gift. Paul asks, where is boasting? It's excluded. Why is it excluded? Well, he says, look, the Mosaic Law couldn't save you, could it? Our works, he says, well, that didn't work either, did it? Our works certainly don't save us. All we can rest on is our faith. All we can conclude is that we are justified by faith in the One who purchased it for us. This, uh, this uh, section in Romans really uh, should remind some of you of a, of, a, of a parable in the Gospels that Jesus spoke in Luke 18. Take a look. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector beside me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In verse 13, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul says, where's boasting? He's speaking to a Jewish and a Gentile audience in Rome. Where's boasting? You can't be like this Pharisee. You can't claim works. You can't claim law. You can't claim anything. All you can do is is beat your breast, in essence, Jesus says, and cry out and say, God, show me mercy. I trust You for mercy. I trust You to show favor to me. I trust Your Son for that. Isn't it interesting that that word merciful right there, uh, this, is, this is kind of crazy. You should underline that if you're in Luke 18. That word merciful there is the Greek verb hilaskomai. Uh, it's the verbal form of propitiation. It's the same thing we've been talking about in verbal form. The man looks up to heaven and says, God, show me mercy. Show me mercy. Propitiate on my behalf. It's in fact what Jesus did. Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul, as we were mentioning, uh, Paul was dealing with a lot of his countrymen who were uh, very prideful in their religion. He was dealing with a sizable group of uh, Jewish believers uh, who thought perhaps a little bit highly of themselves and of their contribution to their right standing before God. And so we see Paul continue in Romans 3 in in somewhat of a mocking tone. He says this, Or is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul says. He says, look, look. Paul's point is very, very simple. No one, Jew or Gentile, has a special in with God. No one. We are all sinners. We all need the propitiatory work of Christ to make us even eligible for salvation. All people, Jew and Gentile, are on the same terms with God. They all need to believe in His Son to be saved. Ethnicity matters not in God's economy. And so Paul concludes in verse 30 and 31. He says, look, since there is one God who will justify both the circumcised, the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentile, by faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, we establish the law. And you say, well, wait a minute. That's, that's a really... Verse 31 is a very peculiar way for him to end that conversation. And in fact, it is kind of an ending point for Paul. He's going to continue on similar themes in chapter 4, as we'll get to soon, but... but This is kind of a random comment that he throws out about the law at the end of verse 31 there. What does he mean? What is he saying? 
Just like Paul did at the start of chapter 3 in Romans. Paul here in verse 30 and 31 is shadow boxing a little bit. He's battling an opponent. An imaginary opponent, if you will. A Jewish believing opponent. And he knows what they're thinking. This is what they're thinking, Paul, Paul estimates. They're thinking, now wait a minute, Paul. Wait just a minute. If you say that all people are on the same terms with God, if you say, Paul, that all people must be justified by faith, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile, then, Paul, what was the point of Moses' law? Doesn't this whole faith thing make the law of Moses void? Doesn't it make it meaningless? Is there any reason for it, Paul? If you seem to be bringing up these, these apparently new terms, which were actually old terms, but they refused to receive that, Paul chimes in quickly. He says, look, certainly not. I am not voiding the law by speaking of justification by faith. Quite the contrary, I am establishing the law. I am putting it in its proper place. What does that mean? Well, remember what Paul said about the law just some 10, 11 verses earlier. He said this about the law. He said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is saying this. He's saying, look, look, brothers and sisters, the law was never meant to bring about justification. The law was never intended to tell people how to be saved by following the letter of the law. Its purpose, the purpose of the law, was to show people just how far they fell short of God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we don't void the law, Paul says, because of justification by faith. For the law was never meant to bring about justification. Instead, we establish the law. We use the law as it was designed to be used. To remind every man, woman, and child just how far they fall short of God. He establishes the law. He puts the law where it's supposed to be put. In a place that is not the place of salvation. The law is not the place we turn to to say, well, how do I enter the kingdom of God? We don't point to the law and say, go here. But No, but we establish the law because the law is holy. It represents God's standards. No one can live up to it. And when we establish the law... We put it in its proper light and it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It reveals how far we fall short of God. It reminds us every day we look at it. Wow, I need a Savior. Wow, I need saving. That is what Paul means by establishing the law in Romans 3, verse 31. Justification by faith doesn't mean we throw away God's Old Testament law. That's a misconception. No, we put it in its proper place. We say, 
to people who think that they can be saved, we say, okay, if you think you can be saved, I want you to turn to the law of Moses and I want you to follow it to a T if you think you can be saved on your own. Follow it to a T. And when they go, well, come on, I, I can't. I'll follow, it. I'll follow 99% of it. We say, exactly. You fall short of God's standards. You, you sin. You err. We all make mistakes. And when we establish the law, we say, look at the law. It shows you that you need a Savior. And then we turn to Jesus. And we see in Christ the way to be saved by faith in Him. In Paul's day, a lot of people were claiming uh, to be doers of the law. In our day, a lot of people claim that they can do enough good works to warrant them getting into heaven. Throughout all time, people will be boasting about their worthiness before God, their personal worthiness before God. But words are cheap. Talk is cheap. The truth is, we are all sinners, and we all need a Savior. The good news is, even though words are cheap, Jesus' death wasn't. Were it not for Jesus' propitiatory death on the cross, none of us could even touch the gates of heaven. But Jesus died, and God's wrath was satisfied, and now we are eligible to receive everlasting life simply by believing in Him for it. Have you believed in Him and received everlasting life? The work of the cross, He did that for all of you. Have you now believed in Him, been reborn, that you might enjoy the kingdom of heaven forever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we hold the cross of Christ in its highest esteem. Lord, when we see the cross, we recognize it was the costliest moment in all of human history. It was the greatest payment, ransom payment, Lord. An actual and a full and a total payment. Sins laid upon Jesus' shoulders. My sin, our sin, the sin of the whole world. Jesus paid that price. God, thank You that You've now made us eligible to be reborn by simply believing in Your Son. God, I pray that no man, woman, or child would leave here not having trusted Your Son for their eternal destiny today. Thank You for the cross, for the price that was paid. We will never diminish its value, Lord. We will always look at it and be reminded that our actual sin was put on Christ that we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.